What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here as usual. Thanks for tuning in wherever you might be. This week on the show, I'm so excited because yet again, we've found a topic we have never covered before, and that is hacking. Yes, hacking. But did you know that hacking is not just all about bits and bytes and RAMs and ROMs? In fact, the original hacking is actual high-risk physical trespassing, as in taking your body into places it shouldn't go, like up elevator shafts and on tops of water towers and things like that. And yes, of course, it includes all of that cool, crazy online hacking stuff you've always heard about, but probably don't know too much about. That's why we want to discuss it on our show this week. This week on the show, we have one of the most prominent hackers in the world, and her hacking name is Alien. Yes, she has a hacking name because, well, what good hacker wouldn't? But guess what? On the show, you are going to get to learn who she truly is. And it's funny because she takes her kids to preschool just like the rest of us. Additionally, on the show, not only do we have this amazing hacker, Alien, but 
journalist and author Jeremy Smith. You see, the two of them teamed up to write a brand new incredible book called Breaking and Entering, the extraordinary story of a hacker called Alien. And that's really what we're uncovering today. Alien is an MIT graduate who dropped her major in aerospace engineering after she was recruited to join a secret student group scaling walls, breaking into buildings, and pulling elaborate pranks. But within a year, one of her hallmates was dead, two others were on trial, and two had been acquitted. And that was only the beginning. 20 years later, Alien has built her own 30-person cybersecurity consulting firm, which she now runs as CEO. Her story is incredible, and it is told by, as we mentioned, Jeremy Smith. Jeremy has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Discover. He and his work have been featured on CNN, NPR News, and Wired. He is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Montana. He's also the author of this book, Breaking and Entering. This is a fascinating story. You're going to learn a lot about hacking. In fact, I think this is a podcast all on its own, and we're considering adding it to the Smart People Network. But that's getting ahead of myself. If you enjoy this or any of our shows, of course, we truly appreciate your support. Remember, you can find us on patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast and get all kinds of great rewards, including inside access to our show, access to our guests, ad-free episodes, and much more. That is patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And keep in mind, if you like the show and you support us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month, once we get to 50 patrons, we're going to go back to weekly episodes so you can listen to Smart People Podcast every week. Patreon.com slash Smart People Podcast. All right, here it is. We bring you Alien and Jeremy Smith as they discuss their incredible story and new book, Breaking and Entering, the extraordinary story of a hacker called Alien. So this is really unique. We've got two people on the call. We've only done that a few times. We also have this incredible story about hacking and this underground world that's going on. Um, but before we get into it all, Jeremy, you really kind of wrote this amazing book, Breaking and Entering, which has already done so well, and it's only been out there a few months. I wanted to kind of take a step back and learn a little bit about you and why you decided to kind of team up with Sherry and write this story. Sure. Um, so I'm a writer and a journalist, and I specialize in profiles. So I look for people who are doing projects where you can talk about big ideas at the same time they've got a cool story themselves. I find the best way to explore interesting ideas is through a personal story. And so I'm just kind of always have my writerly antennae up, if you will. And I went to pick up my daughter from preschool a few years ago. And she was playing with a new kid or a new kid in her class. And the girls were having fun. And I started talking to the mom. And she said, what do you do? And I talked about my books and my articles uh, for about 10 minutes. And then to be polite, I said, what do you do? And she said, well, tomorrow morning, I have to break into a bank. <laughs> And I, I realized uh, I am not the interesting person in this conversation. It's time to ask some follow-up questions. You know? yeah. uh, and it turned out that the mom I was talking to was a kind of proverbial hacker next door uh, who is what they call a white hat hacker. So 
you know, big businesses, government agencies and others hire her and her team to try to break into them to tell how they can be broken into or if they've already been breached. Uh, the team sweeps in to kind of figure out what got taken, how and how to prevent it in the future. They do digital hostage negotiations. Sherry can tell you much more because, as you may have guessed, she was uh, the mom on the playground who turned out to be uh, the hacker next door. So um, that's kind of was my point of entry to the story. And as I heard more and more, I realized that this sort of 20 years uh, that she has spent going from an activity to a profession has paralleled hacking sort of rise from a subculture to a major industry and it, how our whole society has changed. And seeing that from the hacker's perspective was a fascinating opportunity to me. And also something I hadn't realized is there's all this culture and community to hacking that I had never been privy to before. Uh, and there's also a lot of physical and human-based aspects to hacking that I hadn't really been aware of. So that's sort of the big picture point of entry to me and why I got excited and why I felt so lucky once Sherry agreed to work with me and really share her story uh, in depth uh, to be able to tell it and breaking and entering. That brings us to you, Sherry. From what I know, you were really a, a private person when it came to this aspect of your life for, for a while, uh, so much so that you had kind of a pseudonym, uh, Alien. And so I'm wondering what convinced you to really tell this story and want to put it out there? Well, Jeremy is very charming. And I think people just trust him. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so he was very wily and he convinced me slowly at a time. In fact, I don't even think I realized, Jeremy, that you were pumping me for information at first. Um, mm -hmm. But no, I mean, I am a very, very private person, or I suppose I was. And, and I still am protective of my privacy as a security professional. It's something that I care about very deeply. I think you realize that in a very real way, knowledge is power. Um, and so it's important to be aware of who has your data and where it goes. Um, and so it was a very frightening experience for me to share my story and to realize that so many people would be reading it. Um, I, I was very nervous. I felt, you know, how am I going to be judged? What will people think? Um, but ultimately, uh, I felt, as Jeremy pointed out, the industry has really evolved. And I had this amazing opportunity to grow up alongside it. And I wanted that story to be told. I wanted other people to see what it was like um, and what, because even at the time, it felt almost like living in a movie a lot of the times. Um, and I feel like, you know, someday I'll be dead and gone and the story will still be alive. And that's good. Well, it's one of those professions that is uh, glamorized a little bit, right? But it's also fairly unknown. So I think it'd be great to start there. Jeremy kind of called you the hacker next door, which I love. Could you tell us from your perspective what it means to be a hacker? Sure. Well, I think hacking has, or at least it had when I started, these connotations of thinking outside the box, of coming up with creative solutions for problems that maybe hadn't originally been anticipated. Um, when I started at MIT, hacking was something that we did on Saturday nights. We would go hacking uh, and, you know, climb through elevator shafts and on ledges and just generally play. There's this spirit of play. And so it wasn't until later that I realized that that was not how everybody else viewed hacking. Um, and then for a while, once the public started to hear about hackers, they often heard about hackers in a very negative way. And so hacking took on these negative connotations, like hackers broke into a bank, 
Um, and that was really disappointing for those of us who had been part of the hacking culture. Um, and I like that nowadays hacking, we've almost reclaimed hacking for a while. We had to tag on like ethical hacking and white hat hacking. And now I think people realize that there are hacking cuts both ways. There are good and bad hackers. Um, there are criminals and there are white hat hackers. Um, and hacking is, is a state of mind and something beyond. Jeremy, I'm curious as an outsider interviewing somebody who has done so much of this hacking, you know, white hat hacking, what was most surprising to you? Because I'm sure this was a learning journey for yourself to understand this whole subculture and what's going on below the surface. Yeah. I mean, I remember two points early on, and this was before really she agreed to let the book be about her. She kind of gave me two homework assignments. One was to go to DEF CON which is a giant hacker convention in Las Vegas. I hadn't known previously that hackers had public conventions. I had no idea. Hanging out for the weekend uh, in Vegas with 20,000 hackers. And at that point, that they're hackers is not interesting. It's who they are as individuals and what sort of area of specialty they have. So there's a whole you know, giant room full of lock pickers. There's a whole room for people who specialize in hacking cars. There's a room for what they call social engineers who are hackers that are good at, you know, tricking people over the phone or in person uh, to give them private information. There's a whole room for internet of things. So people hacking smart fridges and smart dolls and so on and so forth. So just sort of going to uh, what they call sometimes hacker summer camp with 20,000 people, that was a big immersion into the culture and realizing, wow, there's this community. And by the end of that weekend, I discovered a whole room that's just for their kids. People have been going for so long. They've grown up to the point that they've coupled up and they've started families and their kids are going to these too. So there was a whole area for kids eight to 15. So that was, you know, really surprising to me just to realize that there were public conventions and communities and families that are in this. So yeah. that's that's one track. And the other track is that there is this hundred year old history of hacking that predates computers that is exploring physical spaces at MIT. So going hacking means, as she said, going through uh, steam tunnels, going along ledges, picking locks, dodging security, going up elevator shafts, going on the domes of MIT. And that was my other homework assignment, sort of going out with a crew of MIT hackers and doing those activities too, and having that sense of physical command and physical exploration and physical risk-taking and just the sort of terror, but also the exhilaration I felt and what a different perspective you have the next day when you're walking on the sidewalk and you look up at the dome and you say, last night I was on top of that dome looking down on the sidewalk. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's uh, sort of really analogous to the computer hacking we see. So yeah. I'd say, you know, those are, you know, we could talk more about either one of those paths. But I think at least at first, those were my two biggest surprises and my two sort of earliest uh, kind of homework assignments. And after I kind of did those, hung out a bit there. I think she was more comfortable saying, okay, I guess you can hang. I'll, I'll tell, I'll share more of the story. <laughs> yeah. You're one of the insiders at that point. Well, and as you mentioned, you've written a lot of great pieces, a lot of these kind of uh, telling the stories, unique stories, et cetera. What were you most excited to put in the book? Like what was the thing that really would make this a great story for readers like myself? Well, there's the obvious, there's the kind of the Hollywood answers, right. which I mean, 
the things that are just amazingly daring physical feats that she, you know, Sherry has done in her life. Uh, those include going up an elevator shaft. Those include, you know, learning to ride a motorcycle, uh, you know, through the New Mexico desert and joining a, a traveling circus. Those include in person breaking into a bank and trying to get into a bank vault or stealing a laptop from, you know, a corporate office uh, or going to the Pentagon or starting a business. Or there's a scene in the book where she's, you know, basically finishing a hacking assignment in the hospital right after giving birth. Just things like that where you're like, <laughs> this is challenging seven preconceptions at the same time and it's also seven levels of badassery yeah. that, of course, I'm dying to write it. And then the other part is just the human elements, the relationships, the growth, the maturation of both the person and the community and the industry is just so special because we have this weird paradox right now where everyone is aware of hackers and hacking, but we have, most people can't place it. They don't have a face to it. And even if there's a face to it, it's sort of like 40 years old. It's like Matthew Broderick and War Games or 30 years old. It's Angelina Jolie and hackers. Mm -hmm. So the idea of being able to not just have someone who's real, uh, but watch them grow up was just an amazing opportunity. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Listen up, Amazon Prime members. For a limited time, you can start an Audible membership and save 66% on your first three months, a total of $30 off. That's like getting three months for the price of one. You'll pay just $4.95 per month for the first three months. After that, it's only $14.95 per month. Offer is valid from July 1st, 2019 through July 31st, 2019. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, which lets you fill your summer with stories like Iconic Advantage, Don't Chase the New, Innovate the Old, by Soon New, and previous Smart People podcast guest, David Burse. Audible is a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, sunbathing on the beach or poolside, running, road tripping, enjoying downtime outdoors, and more. Listen anytime, anywhere, and never lose your spot when you switch devices. Visit audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500, 500 to get started today. Again, visit audible.com slash smart. That's S M A R T. And now back to the episode. Yeah. Well, Sherry, I want to learn a little bit more about the story. Of course it's covered in depth in the book and no, I mean, unless we talk for a hundred hours, you know, <laughs> we're not going to cover it all. But could you give us a little bit so that the listeners are caught up to what we're even talking about? How did it start? And then kind of how you transitioned into what is now this white hat hacking, having your own organization, et cetera. Sure. I started off um, as a freshman at MIT, or at least that's the beginning of Jeremy's book. Um, and that was when I sat down and typed in a username, alien, and it turns out, poof, that's your name for the rest of your time and you can't change it. Um, and that's actually been a, a, a name that's stuck with me for my whole life since. Um, and so from there, I got swept away into the hacker culture, which we've talked about. Um, and I enjoyed hacking and spelunking and um, moving into some leadership positions, helping to organize at various points. Um, and then um, experienced some deaths and some challenges within that community, uh, which I think Jeremy explored very nicely. There was actually a lot more than was in the book over the coming years. 
Um, I had the opportunity to join MIT's network security team uh, back when it was first starting. And I still remember I answered an ad for people who like to stay up late and eat pizza. And I was like, I am qualified for that. <laughs> I stay up late and I eat pizza. And they were looking for people who wanted to monitor the network for viruses and respond to them. And so we did that and ultimately ended up running MIT's incident response program uh, for a while. And it was uh, amazing to see that birth of the information security industry. And from there, I went to work for the, uh, a hospital. And I had, again, the opportunity to see HIPAA coming into enforcement for the first time and, uh, you know, seeing hospital equipment getting infected with viruses and seeing how this impacted day-to-day -day patient care um, and how hard it is, how challenging it is for healthcare organizations to stay on top of that and keep track of that. I mean, we had a lot of work to do at the time and we still do. Um, from there, I uh, ended up going into consulting, ultimately started my own consulting practice and moved into a manager position and a teaching position. And so in many ways, I feel like I've had a chance to come full circle. And, um, you know, back in the day, nobody knew what cybersecurity was. I didn't see it as a career. I saw it as the thing I did to make money until I could figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Wow. And uh, <laughs> really, <laughs> as Jeremy's written his book, I've sort of woken up and been like, wow, every Everybody thinks this cybersecurity is cool, and uh, they seem to know what it is now. I mean, I used to have to explain to people what a penetration test was. They looked at me like I was on the moon. And now um, most people have some kind of idea. They know you're breaking into companies, and they know that's a thing that people do. Um, you may not know a hacker yourself, uh, but people have this concept of what hackers are. And 17, 18 years ago, when I started, it was just not a profession or people didn't realize that it was a profession. Right. I'm curious, uh, two kind of similar questions here. One is, did you ever even toy with the idea of not going the white hat route? Like, was there ever a time where you thought about using your superpowers, perhaps not for good? And then after that answer, do you know folks who at one point or still do it uh, for black hat reasons? So um, I think I'll answer your questions in the reverse order. First okay. of all, I, of course, know people who have committed crimes uh, on the Internet um, because many of them did ultimately transition into real professional jobs. And a lot of times uh, some of the best um, white hat hackers today were black hat hackers when they were teenagers back in the 90s. Mm. And they can protect you. That they can protect your organization and make it so your credit card number doesn't get stolen because they were the ones who were stealing credit card numbers back in the 90s. Um, but remember, it was a different environment then. There was uh, a lot less education around ethics. There were fewer boundaries. I think a lot of times they got swept up in this community and didn't really see what they were doing as bad, didn't see what the harm would be. Um, whereas now there's a lot more education, there's a lot more rules. And I think when people break into organizations on the internet now, they know that they are crossing a line. Um, and, you know, anybody in my industry who goes to DEF CON, I mean, Jeremy, I'm sure you talked with criminals and interviewed mm -hmm. criminals and you may not have even realized it, right. which is odd. You know, FBI agents hang out with criminals together. <laughs> um, and then for myself, uh, no, I have no interest in crime. And I mean, perhaps it could be more profitable from a financial perspective, but I'm very invested in my community. I love Montana. I love Missoula. I love my family and my kids. And it's really, um, it's never something I've even considered because I want to protect and support our communities. 
here's the problem. There's so many crazy stories in this book. It's hard to, <laughs> to, to get that across in a podcast. And that's another reason why it's kind of great fodder for those who want to just go buy the book. But from an outsider perspective, what was your favorite story to tell uh, throughout this book? Well, I mean, I think I've mentioned, you know, a few of them. I mean, you know, to pick one out of example, there's, you know, and I might have a different one if you ask me 10 minutes later. <laughs> so I'd be curious what I'd be curious what Sherry's answer is, too. But I mean, a story I go to a lot is just her first day on the job as a white hat hacker when you know, she kind of gets her first assignment and she's proven she's taught, you know, worked her way into this job by winning a very technical kind of hacking competition called a capture the flag competition where she's the only woman there. She's the youngest person there. And in the means and the people running that competition, one of them runs this white hat hacking, you know, business uh, and ends up hiring her and her first day on the job is not a technical assignment though. It's a physical breaking and entering kind of assignment. And it's in front of these corporate offices of one of the world's largest banks. And it's, can you get in there? And if you get in there, can you come out with something valuable uh, with some you know, kind of data or equipment or any other insights that would show you know, this, this major institution to be vulnerable? And her partner says, you know, I don't think we can do it. And she's she's got the the gut to kind of leap out of the car and say, just give me give me 10 minutes. Let me see what I can do. And she ends up talking her way past the guard, gets into the offices and ends up escaping with a laptop that could have very sensitive data on. It. And, you know, that's I just think of day one on my job, where, <laughs> you know, when I was, you know, 25, 26. And what I had to do and the challenges I had to overcome and just the level of sort of challenge, initiative and triumph uh, in like 10 minutes. Uh, and, you know, by the end of that week, she's talked her way into like five bank vaults themselves. Uh, and so using a totally different kind of uh, means of person to person persuasion. And what I love about that human hacking uh, is that, you know, I think it's just more accessible to us because when we think of a. A computer where like whoever made it put some kind of error in it that lets these people who are very clever go through it and find these openings. But when we think of ourselves and our own lives and our own personalities, we've got those same kind of gaps and vulnerabilities. So that face to face stuff is really powerful to me. I, I I can name a computer based example too, but I'll 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 step off it for now. Uh, that's 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 a human based one that that really appealed to me. I want to pause on this human based hacking because it gets so less focus out there in the world. Talking your way past a guard, that is a completely different skill than hacking into somebody's central network on a computer. How do you learn to be so persuasive that people will do things that are completely against their better judgment? Well, I think it all comes down to risk taking in both areas. And um, actually, that ties in with the piece that I'm glad Jeremy included, uh, which is the motorcycle. And it's not one specific story. It's, you know, this object that appears throughout the book. Um, but it almost got cut and I had to like make a case for it and sort of pitch why it was important. And a motorcycle is not, you know, a lot of people ride 
ride motorcycles, but I was this young, frightened uh, 20-something-year-old, and I was scared to ride a motorcycle, but I really wanted to try it because it looked like a lot of fun. Um, and so it was this process of me, like, you know, I had a mentor who taught me to ride, and I would ride behind him all the time, and then gradually, you know, taking, I think I took two motorcycle safety foundation classes because I'm such a scaredy cat and uh, you know I had to I was uh, going through the mountains of New Mexico way too slowly for him and he would get mad, mad at me but ultimately I learned to relax and I learned to accept that risk and one of the most important things I learned is that let's say you're going too fast and you hit a curve, you can't slow down. Cause that was always my instinct. Like, Oh, I'm scared. I'm going to slow down. You have to hit the accelerator. And the exact same thing is true. If you're talking your way into bank building, uh, let's say you get a curveball and the guard is looking at you funny. You can't just be like, Ooh, I'm going to back out now. You can't slow down. You have to redouble it and be like, Oh, I have a business card or I'm going to make a call. You have to accelerate. Same is true in your business. You know, if you hit a slow time, you got to invest in marketing, things like that. So I, found it useful in many different contexts. You just sort of have to keep moving forward. This week's episode of Smart People Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, anger, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option and for Smart People Podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash smart. So why not get started today? Head over to betterhelp.com slash smart. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with the counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash smart. One more time, it's betterhelp.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Wow, that is such a great parallel for, for you to be able to draw to help us understand it. Because another question I then had is, what characteristics do you have that enabled you to be great at both this human and technological hacking? And do you feel like you were just a natural or did these really have to be honed? Um, I think there's a lot of different types of people that are good at social engineering and good at hacking. Um, I happen to be a fairly social creature, so I think that helps with, um, you know, getting talking guards into letting me into places. Um, but again, that hackers, um, the best hackers I know all have this instinct where they are not just uh, accept, they don't just accept risk, but they are drawn to it and they will take calculated risks and they're comfortable winging it and they're comfortable thinking outside the box. Um, there's other skill sets that are good in different industries, but in our industry and in this particular role, you've got to be comfortable winging it. Because remember, cybersecurity is a new industry. I'm always amazed that there's folks today that have degrees in cybersecurity and classes in cybersecurity because, again, 17, 18 years ago, that didn't happen. And so everybody who was in the industry from that era was a pioneer, and we all had to teach ourselves. So we had to take risks with our career. We had to take risks in doing our work itself. Um, so that's, the, I think, the 
trait that ties us all together. Do you get extremely nervous? And do you have any words of wisdom to help calm those nerves, similar to what you gave us about the motorcycle? Sure. I mean, I used to get nervous, particularly in, even on professional jobs in situations where there are armed guards, especially. Um, and, uh, you know, I've had cases where um, I've been given the wrong address to, ha- to break into, like a physical <laughs> building. And, um, or I've just been in situations that are physically, uh, you know, a bit risky. Um, at this point, I feel like I'm just too old to get nervous. <laughs> I feel like every day there's just something that I don't expect. And, you know, that's, that's just life. Okay, we're going to deal with this crazy thing now. You know, there's a new ransomware case. This, a city has been taken over. A hospital has been taken over. We have to negotiate with the ransomers. We get curveballs on cases. And um, that's just life. Wait, that... that- actually happens? Like you deal with those things? We do. Yeah. Our COO, Karen, does the majority of our ransom negotiations, uh, like actually working with them. But yeah. And remember when um, organizations get taken over with ransomware, um, for example, we had a case a few weeks ago where uh, an organization was being held hostage for $130,000 and that was covered by insurance, you know? So (laughs) we're doing the interesting criminal negotiations and we're coordinating with an insurance company and dealing with paperwork. Um, So, and I used to tell our pen testers testers that all the time. Like our our job is half fascinating and half boring. You get to break into an organization, but you have to write the report. Yeah. Um, So that's, that's what comes with being a professional. Jeremy, after learning all these things, kind of this, you know, secondhand account, how has it shaped your opinion of your personal digital privacy? Well, it's made me much more aware that I lack it in almost (laughs) all areas. And it's made me take measures to increase it that are themselves, you know, kind of frustrating sometimes or sometimes, you know, uh, you know, are pretty easy. So something that's very easy is we can all you know, pretty much with a click, uh, turn on encryption on our hard drive. So if someone t- stole your hard drive, it would not be readable to them. Mm. Something that's a little bit more involved, uh, that's kind of frustrating is encryption in our messages and our email. So I can send encrypted messages to you and you can send them back to me, but only if we both sort of set up the encryption in a, in a, in advance And so, you know, it's just hard to do kind of casually with one another for our messaging. Uh, Other things, you know, include just I've changed how I search for things online and how I browse online. And I take measures like I have a, a what they call a virtual private network, which is automated. It's easy, but it costs a little money. So if I do public Wi-Fi in a coffee shop, I'm better protected from people like Sherry being in the coffee shop (laughs) with me. Uh, and you know, uh, I do, you know, other things like, you know, I, I don't use Google as my default search engine because it's privacy, you know, is much less, uh, than, uh, DuckDuckGo, for example, which sort of emphasizes, uh, privacy first and it's searching at the same time. That means when I search for, you know, movie times, I have to say where, where I am because Google knows and is tracking that and the other one isn't. So uh, you know, if I say drugstore, uh, you know, Google knows exactly what's right next to me and it's been tracking me this whole time. So I think there's pluses and minuses to those things. And, you know, Sherry's kind of, I think she's more conservative in some aspects of privacy and she's less conservative in others because she's even more immersed in technology. Right. Well, and Sherry, that was something right off the bat when we were talking, you said, you know, knowledge is power and 
for everyone out there listening, I'm curious if you could help us understand how concerned we should be about our digital footprint. Because for a long time, I had the sort of naive belief that, hey, look, as long as I'm not doing anything wrong, I really don't care who knows what. And then I had something unique happen. I wanted to Google something and it wasn't like awful, but it, I paused because I was like, somebody out there is watching me or thinking about this. And I realized that's an issue. Like the fact that we have to really every step of the way, think about it. I'll even joke with my friends if they say something on a phone call, Hey man, now the, you know, NSA is listening. Good job. How concerned do we need to be about people being able to really know anything they want about us? The issue right now is that we do not control how data is used when it gets out. Um, and let me give you an example. Data can be used in very subtle ways that we may not even be aware of. Um, so here's, here's one theoretical possibility. Let's say 15 years from now, you apply for a job and you're turned down. And you're wondering, why did I get turned down? And it turns out that the prospective employer, um, Acme Inc. or whatever, yes. uh, that they run a check of all potential employees. You take some hiring tests, they run a background check. And one of the, the things they get from this third-party company they work with uh, is an employability score. So this third-party company does all the background check work and they do data analytics. Um, and they say, this person has a, an employee reliability score of 36, whatever it is. And um, your employer says, okay, that's too low for us. We're going to go with another candidate. Now, where does that employee employability score come from? Well, it turns out that this um, hire selection company uh, buys their data from a variety of different sources. And maybe some of it ultimately came from the dark web. They might not have even realized it. Um, but it went through a bunch of different hands. Maybe some of it includes information um, from keywords in your emails. You got put on a list of people who are going through a divorce or who have bad credit or whatever it is. That can be used not just in employment selection, but also in um, insurance rates, things like that in the future. So I would just be concerned because your data is being mined so thoroughly, not just the things that you put publicly on Twitter or on Facebook, but just the keywords that you have in your email. Um, businesses can go through those keywords and not they're not only marketing to you, they can put you into groups, into different buckets of people, people who are feeling stressed out, people who are neurotic, you know, whatever it is. And that can be used for all kinds of things that we have no laws to govern right now. So that's my concern. Um, when it comes to things like having your bank account number stolen, having your identity stolen, those things can absolutely be challenging. But your bank account number can be changed. If you're a consumer, uh, your personal liability is very low. Um, you, your uh, social security number can't be changed, unfortunately. Um, but what I, I'm more concerned about are your medical records. You know, those stay valuable forever. If you have some nasty disease today, someone could bribe you about that or extort you in 15 or 20 years. Mm. Um, or perhaps your psychotherapy records, if those get stolen, there's things in there that you might not, not want to get out. So I worry more about that very confidential information, things in my email, things in my medical records. I worry about that a lot more than things like, my social security number or my credit card number, because it's the, the private conversations and activities that you have that have this lasting value. This week's episode is brought to you by Rothy's. 
Have you heard about this company making stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles? Oh, and they're insanely comfortable and machine washable. Rothy's has quickly grown to a most loved gotta have them brand. It's no surprise they have over a thousand nearly perfect reviews. Rothy's shoes are stylish, sustainable, and comfortable enough for everyday wear. But you don't have to take it from me. I don't wear them, but luckily my wife Amanda does. Amanda, what do you think about your Rothy's? I love my Rothy's. I got the gray camo sneaker and they are super cute and go with everything that I own. They're honestly the most comfortable pair of shoes that I have ever had. John, I know this is going to kill you, but I can't wait to see what new colors and patterns that Rothy's comes out with in the future. Oh, can't wait. Rothy's are the everyday flats for life on the go. They come in a wide range of colors and patterns, and they're available in four different silhouettes. Plus, they're constantly launching new styles, so you're guaranteed to find a pair or three that you'll love. Since Rothy's are seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles, they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. That's right, there's zero break-in period in these shoes. Plus, Rothy's always comes with free shipping and free returns and exchanges. No risk, no worries, no reason not to try. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com smart. Go to rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash smart to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Could you tell us what are the precautions you take to protect a lot of your security? So I recommend that everybody take three specific precautions. Number one, think before you click. So before you click on that link, before you click on that attachment, think really carefully about whether you need to do that because 90% of the time that's how people get hacked. Number two, back up your data because when people are being held for ransom, uh, if you haven't backed up your data, it's, uh, it can make it so that you need to negotiate with criminals. So back it up. And number three, use multi-factor authentication. I cannot stress the importance of this enough. Um, I see so many people who get their email accounts hacked or who have their um, medical information stolen because they're using portals and they're using uh, cloud email providers and they're not taking advantage of two-factor authentication. So authentication means how we verify someone's identity and two-factor authentication means we're just using more than one way to verify our identity. So instead of just a password, you use a password and an app on your phone. Um, so that means that if a criminal has uh, stolen your password, which happens all the time, um, or maybe they've bought it on the dark web, they still can't immediately break into your account because you do have that second factor protecting you. I wanted to, I, I did want to ask you, Sherry, tell us your favorite James Bond moment. You know, in all the hacking adventures you've gone on, what's the one that <laughs> sticks out in your mind? Ooh, you know, that's a very big question. I know. It has to be a hacking adventure specifically. Um, the one in the book that I really enjoyed the most was when I was sitting in a coffee shop and it was a nice sunny afternoon and I had just hacked into uh, the reservation system of a major airline. Um, <laughs> and it just felt like I had this rush, like I was flying and it's so crazy. Cause you know, everyone else in the coffee shop is like, you know, eating their donuts and working on their homework. And you're like, wow, I'm on 
a really important system for a major airline. So it did make me question our security as a society in general. It was a little, it made me a little nervous flying after that. Um, but it was also, it, it gives you an amazing sense of power when you're doing it. And um, it's an incredible learning experience. Yeah, I cannot even imagine that. Jeremy, I'm curious, like what were some of the things in this story that you had to decide whether you were going to leave out or keep in. Mm. I'm curious, given just because this is your world, right? You think so in depth about how am I going to basically shape this narrative? What was it that you wanted to make sure came across? And what did you kind of maybe leave out if you can answer that? Sure. I mean, I think there's a through line in a story, which is, you know, whose adventures are you following from beginning to end? And obviously that's Sherry. Now she's had amazing other people in her life, as she'll be the first to tell you at every step of the way from freshman, 17 year old at MIT to uh, colleagues, you know, in her business and in her industry today. And so those people are such interesting characters and they have their own interesting stories that, you know, it's always tempting to just tell more of their stories or make them richer as they are so rich. Right. Uh, and I tried to touch on them, but at the same time, I knew I couldn't kind of get lost. You know, Romeo and Juliet is about Romeo and Juliet. It's not about Mercutio, even though <laughs> Mercutio is a really interesting character. Uh, so, you know, Shakespeare's got to kind of have to get rid of him. And, uh, you know, same thing here. Um, you know, there's, you know, a, a lockpicker that comes in really briefly, you know, named Deviant, who's, you know, huge to my sort of exploring the world and, and even designed a hacker bookmark, uh, for us at the end of the book, uh, when the book process was complete. So you can, it's a bookmark you can use to actually like, uh, pick locks and get into some locked doors. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, people like that are just all of her, you know, friends from college, just hanging out with them. They, you know, so many of them are doing amazing things or her mentor when she was working at Los Alamos National Laboratory. It's just this amazing programmer and coder with a really interesting outlook on life. Um, so trying to touch on those people as they intersect with her story, but knowing those are not the through lines I can follow myself. I mean, one idea we've batted around, uh, we should bring you on board. It's yeah. Like, you know, it's like a podcast where I just interview all these secondary characters, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the book and, you know, make them prime, you know, give them their, their uh, 45 minutes in the spotlight because uh, they're, they're pretty amazing people themselves, too. OK, so one last thing, Sherry, I, I just wanted to ask you this. What is it that makes most companies vulnerable? Sure. I mean, most attackers are either exploiting weak passwords or sending phishing emails, and then people are clicking on those links. And that's been the case since probably about 2005 um, was when we really started to see that uptick in spam um, because companies started getting good at installing firewalls, which are like one-way gates. They let traffic out. They don't let traffic in as much. That's a simplified view. Um, but what that means is that people click on links, and then as soon as their computer is infected, their computer starts phoning home to the attacker every, every couple minutes, like clockwork. That's really common. Um, so again, those three things that everyone can do to stay safe, think before you click, take backups, use multi-factor authentication. Those are true whether you're at home or you're at work, um, and you can really reduce your risk of getting hacked by following those three things. I love it. And those are some takeaways for everyone listening. Well, Jeremy and Sherry, it has been so great to have you on. I've been looking forward to this, just learning about this. It kind of feels, you know, it just, it gets your blood pumping a little bit. I can imagine, Sherry, every day it does for you. 
Um, so again, <laughs> I pray for a boring day, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, most of us just trust me. That would be, that would be fantastic. The book is breaking and entering the extraordinary story of a hacker called alien who now everyone listening knows it's, you know, it's just the woman next door who takes her kids to preschool like everyone else. Um, but before we let you go, I just wanted to give each of you a moment to let us know this is so cool. This stuff is so great to follow. Is there a place where we can get more of it? Do you have websites? Are you active on social? Tell us where we can find you both. Sure. I'm Jeremy N. Smith at jeremynsmith.com or at Jeremy N. Smith on Twitter. And there's lots more book info links, including video segments and you know things we've done together on book TV, when the Today Show interviewed Sherry and lots more. Yep, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sherry Davidoff, S-A-T-R-R-I, Davidoff, D-A-V-I-D-O-F-F. Uh, I'm also the CEO of two companies, cybersecurity companies, LMG Security and Brightwise. And those, both of those companies, do they kind of serve this purpose, working with organizations who need to find their vulnerabilities? LMG is a consulting company, so we break into companies and write reports about it. We help um, organizations that get hacked clean up, handle the investigation. We do compliance work. Brightwise is a training company. We make short little animated cybersecurity training videos that are convenient for your staff. Um, so if you're interested, feel free to reach out. Our website is bright-wise.com. Yeah, that's what I was curious because I know a lot of people who own companies or are high up at companies listen. So everybody needs somebody like Sherry in their corner. So thank you both again so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure. That was Sherry Davidoff and Jeremy Smith, and that was fascinating. Their book, Breaking and Entering, the extraordinary story of a hacker called Alien, can be found wherever books are sold. All right, I'll only keep you all here for a little bit for housekeeping, but I've got to do it. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. If you enjoy the show and you want to support us, you can do so in a handful of ways. One of the best ways is to head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast and become a patron and support the show on a monthly basis. If you're looking for a free and easy way to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. If you want to stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for me this week. Hope you all enjoyed the show. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of awesome interviews coming up. So we'll see you all next episode.